Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Merry Christmas, subscribers. Proud to bring you a dunked on tradition to do a podcast on the Christmas games on Christmas Day. And interesting slate, probably, I would say, second best game of the day, at least on paper, Philly and New York, given the lack of absences relatively for either side. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I mean, some of them, the absences will be notable. Of course, we'll talk about that. But I was interested in this game for a couple different reasons, one of them being some of the tactical wrinkles, what these teams try to take away, what they try to do, and defending the pick and roll for the Knicks. They've done a pretty good job limiting opponent shots around the basket overall this year, but three-point has been a story for both these teams. And I would say there were tactical wrinkles that were extremely important this game, especially in the Sixers run, which I think is the place to start here. Philadelphia did not lead in the first three quarters of the opening game, but they took a 24 to nine run to start the fourth, which pushed them into what was eventually a very insurmountable lead. It was 116, 102, I think at that point. Yeah, and they started it with Joel Embiid on the bench. It was interesting that late in the first, they went to a group without Harris, Harden, or Embiid. That didn't go as well, but they had Harden and Harris out there, George Niang as well, and the Sixers started going crazy from three. Niang had four three-pointers in the period, and the biggest thing that stuck out to me, and this player had a, a really nice game on the offensive end most of the way, Julius Randle, But it was the same problem, Danny, that we saw in that NBA cast game that we did where they couldn't guard a pick and pop four man with Julius Randle. Or at least chose not to do the switch. I mean, there are are times where I thought that the threat assessment by I guess you would say that's Tibbs was, you know, I think at times you can roll those dice. Harden isn't getting to the basket all the way in the same way. Also, they have pretty good help. So, I mean, I I think they should have gone to that more. But the lack of comfort there and it led to the Knicks conceding all of these pick and pop shots. And as you tweeted at the time, it directly paralleled a game that changed in the I believe it was the early fourth quarter it did it a couple times and that was when we did Cavs Knicks for the strategy stream and it was these Donovan Mitchell Kevin Love pick and pops and Love a wonderful shooter George Niang a wonderful shooter and they're just getting wide open looks and it'll come in at other points as well wide wide open shooter good looks and they converted those swung the game yeah, I think it, it's interesting. They eventually went to switch that after Niang. I think it hit his third three of the quarter. And then Harden actually got past Randall and finished. But overall, I thought it was the case for both teams. But 
particularly for the Knicks, where they just could not keep their hands out of the cookie jar. Tom Thibodeau decried the reckless regions, and that was at the start of the fourth quarter in his interview, and things that got worse from there. So obviously Harden and Embiid, very reliant on getting to the foul line. That's been a, a big theme, and Embiid, 15 free throw attempts, Harden 11. And so many of those just came out of the kind of BS foul drawing moves that those guys like to do. But when you reach in on them, it, you give them that opportunity. And certainly a big part of why they're able to draw fouls is because of the threat that they present. But for a team that thrives on discipline, Tom Thibodeau clearly in his preparation was all over the idea that you can't foul these guys and you can't reach in, but they just weren't able to do it. So it ended up being 26 of the Sixers, 29 free throw attempts for those guys as well. As bad as it got though, offensively, or I should say as bad as it got for the Knicks with Philly's offense, they only put up 24 in that period. Right. It was really the New York offense that totally fell apart in the fourth. That's a great point. And during that fourth quarter, you know, I, I've brought it before at times when the Knicks have been lucky and Philly has been the most fortunate team so far this year on opponent three point shooting, not judging for contested, uncontested, just pure numbers. New York 0 for 8 on threes, mostly above the break. And then they and they were in total 0 for 10 on jump shots and just didn't get a ton around the basket either. I believe they didn't get to the line a ton in that fourth quarter either. So the the wells, all of the wells basically dried up at the same time for them. And yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. We, I, I talked about the 24 nine and we were focused on the 24 at first but those nine points that's a huge huge problem too and it was a stark contrast with what took place in the first three quarters because the Knicks had a 141 offensive rating in the first three quarters and the Sixers 139.7 and a big part of that was just the three-point shooting and then the Knicks failed to make a three in the fourth they only had I think three field goals in the whole fourth or at least during the competitive portion of the fourth and the Sixers, of course, uh, they were able to maintain their scorching three-point shooting throughout in that fourth quarter with the four threes, all of them uh, by Niang. So any other kind of big themes that stuck out to you here? Well, I, I think we talked about him in the negative end, which is un- which is unfortunate, though he earned it defensively. But I thought Julius Randle putting together that 35 and 8, like he, it's... It's not always in the the ways that you and I, you know, love love focusing on for for great offensive players. You know, Randall did get a fair amount around the basket. The jump shot, I think, it was better today than it has been in most games overall. But I thought he did a he did a good job offensively, kind of taking a lot of those shots. I mean, he, he took twenty four, R.J. Barrett took twenty one, and Jalen Brunson took nineteen. So the Knicks, what we think of as their best offensive players, or at least conceptually, they they took a vast majority of the attempts in this game. Yeah, and it has uh, as they've shorten the rotation I think been clarifying for them to focus the offense mostly through those three players and we'll see what happens when Obi Toppin comes back but he's not going to probably be a a guy who's going to change that you'd think a lot of his minutes would come at the expense of these two big lineups with Jericho Sims which we can talk about a little bit more unfortunately a big part of the Knicks struggles were Jalen Brunson appeared to have some sort of a right hip injury which he was favoring throughout the second half eventually went to the locker room he was fantastic overall in his 35 minutes with 23 points and 11 assists I like that he's been a little bit more aggressive shooting the three-pointer than he was in Dallas when the defense goes under it it was more like he would take him wide open and now he's taking a little bit more on the move which is great to see his floater game was working really well but they really could have used him down the end because they didn't have the organization they ended up having to play bear at 43 minutes where and he's been with the bench and he 
had 44 in their last second loss to the Bulls on Friday, but ended up struggling to six out of 21 and 17 points in all. But getting back to Randall, his game. He had all four of his three-pointers in the first half, three of them yep. in, the, in the first quarter. And what did you think about the way he was getting his points in that first half? And while the comeback did happen partially with him on the floor, he was plus five in 40 minutes. Yeah. I, I did think that he would. So with Randall, I still don't love the mechanics like of a pull up shot for him. I don't think he quite has that in his bag. But if you give him a spot up and Randall has his feet under him, I, I, I'd have to look at the numbers on it. But I feel a lot better about that shot. And of those of those first few he hit, I think at least two of them were feet under him. Just take a good shot. You know, is this, I, I the two that he took right away i noticed he's actually like kind of on the move going to his left but uh, oh i was thinking more of the later ones yeah maybe maybe he's more comfortable uh, with that shot i mean mean, there are sometimes guys are are just comfortable with the shots that they're comfortable with uh, and it it wouldn't necessarily be a good shot for some guys but it's a an okay shot for him but yeah i mean he definitely he's kind of settled in this year where i thought he would be last year and he's been much better than last year uh, on both ends overall though i it was interesting. I liked the most what he was doing, being six of seven at the rim. And he was able to do that by hitting some threes early and then getting P.J. Tucker to close out to him and getting strong left-handed drives to the basket. And Julius Randle, I think we've kind of forgotten that he's a pretty good athlete for the body type that he has at 6'10", kind of strong guy, that he actually can get some pretty good pop around the rim. We just haven't seen it as much because they've been isoing him a lot. He hasn't. They haven't had great space facing around him and so he's had to pull up a lot or he's really finished in a contested paint and I thought the Knicks spacing overall was a lot better they've cut out a lot of those mid-ranges that's the other thing with Randall this year and in this game was unless he had a mismatch that they kind of flowed into in a semi-transition situation they really didn't post him up yeah very much which was good to see he ended up having to take six mid-rangers which is maybe more than you'd like but he, he had it rolling in this game and the Knicks with 12 mid-rangers that's more than they normally take they like to more take floaters and threes at this point so the Sixers were able to impact them a little bit more as the game went on and particularly in that fourth quarter once the three-point shooting cooled off a little bit we haven't mentioned the name Joel Embiid other than in the context of the foul drawing what did you I mean he tied for with Randall for the leading score 15 free throw attempts which is what you invoked earlier what do you think of him overall because remember the Knicks play traditional centers almost all the time yeah and I thought Mitchell Robinson he's always at risk of picking up fouls against Embiid anyone guarding Embiid is but Robinson was plus 12 and it seemed obvious why Tom Thibodeau really wanted to match up Robinson's minutes with Embiid and I also thought it was interesting that if he had to go to a center guarding Embiid outside of Robinson they actually went with Jericho Sims yeah rather than Isaiah Hartenstein and but Embiid, I thought he struggled a little bit early and then was able to get into rhythm in that first uh, at the foul line. And then also he, he got that mid-ranger going as well, uh, hitting four or seven. And uh, particularly at the start of the third, it seemed like he came out with more energy. His first play of the, at the start of the third was up top, hard, right-handed drive past Robinson for a dunk. Then he got him on his heels, pulled up for a mid-ranger over him, and Embiid was fantastic in the third, even hit hit the offensive glass as well late in the fourth. And I thought defensively, while the Knicks lit them up, that Joel did show a little more activity. Not all of it was that effective. Like there was one play where he came from one side of the lane to the other and to contest Barrett ended up landing on him. But I thought I did see a little bit more energy from him 
defending the rim, maybe just with it being a big game on Christmas, than we have seen at times this season. But even so, and even with the shooting lock, it's hard to argue with the overall defensive results from the Sixers so far this season. For sure. And I've talked about a few times the shooting luck that they've had. And New York actually made them reasonably 12 of 32. That's, you know, a little bit under 37, 38%. Sorry. And for Philly, I mean, there's the the offensive balance. I mean, I think things are things are getting a little bit more back to normal, you know, Harden and Embiid playing, playing more. And I, you know, I, I, D'Anthony Melton's not going to make five or seven threes every game, but usually he'll provide a, he'll provide a little bit more defensive playmaking. I thought he did a reasonable job defensively, but he had to do that playmaking. And the, what, what Harden does, PJ Tucker did take two shots and one free throw in this game is I think it, it, it puts the other players in a really good chance. And I give Philly, Doc Rivers, the whole team credit for how they played in those guys' absences. But when I watched, especially the fourth quarter of this game like oh yeah that's how it's supposed to work yeah it it really was good to see from James Harden he was fantastic passing the ball on pick and roll uh had 13 assists 29 points and uh, the 11 free throws even though very few of those were plays where all right he's actually getting to the rim really putting the defense in a compromised position and and then you mentioned Melton I mean that five of seven from three from him you know he's been hitting 40 percent he's taken eight threes a game he's averaging over 20 points yeah since uh, I think that number since Maxi went out and we probably haven't talked about him enough on this program but I thought the biggest thing that was impressive from him was just the way he's shooting the ball even on the move they had a shooting set for him they at one point they set a flare screen for him they threw a pass from the weak side so he's just been incredibly important and there was some talk maybe that Maxi could be back. He was not, of course, but that is imminent. And you know, a lot of people have been talking too about, hey, should Melton keep starting here? Like they've now won eight straight, and or, or do they take PJ Tucker out of the starting lineup, or maybe you make it kind of more matchup dependent as well? Uh, so I, I'm. Those will be some interesting questions for Doc Rivers to answer. Doc generally doesn't try to rock the boat with things like this, uh, and with especially Maxie. not when the team is playing well. Well, well, yeah. I guess I guess there is there's two definitions of rocking the boat, right? Like w- what rocking the boat from like a personality standpoint. I was thinking sure. where it's just like Tyrese Maxey has made these great strides as a scorer and he's playing for a contract extension this year and it just clearly would go over very poorly if he gets relegated to the bench although we've seen the likes of Tyler Hero and Jordan Poole still get paid out of that role so I guess we'll we'll see what he decides and kind of see how it goes maybe we can get into that more at a later point and the rest of the rotation for the Sixers interesting Montrose Harrell didn't do much but was plus 13 and he was part of those bench groups uh, as well. And I think he benefited indirectly from New York not being able to guard the pick and pop with Niang. And so the fact that he's kind of hanging out in the dunker spot, you know, his man wasn't really able to do anything uh, on that pick and pop. That's the, the beauty of pick and pop. If you're not going to switch it is it's really hard to get help. And they tried to bring it from the opposite side at times, but it's just it's really difficult to do that. And let's see what, you know, Tobias Harris had a quiet game, couldn't hit a three, even though everybody else uh, on Philly was making everything. Harden as well, like his 5 of 11 from three, when he does that, uh, you still would love to try to make James Harden make two-point field goals. And I'm sure that's what Tom Thibodeau's plan was, and they just couldn't execute it. Right. Uh, I did think Thibodeau did a nice job of not taking Quentin Grahams out of the game in the first quarter when he got two fouls. Uh, both of them guarding Harden ended up and uh, he ended up only having four and playing 39 minutes. So, so that went pretty well. 
any other like players who stood out any other kind of coaching decisions that were interesting to you let me see if I no, that, that's about that's notes. about all i had from this one yeah i think d'anthony melton is getting better at this you know he still is, is more of a playmaker defensively but he's been asked to be in an on-ball role and when you saw him going up against golden state in the playoffs and play in the last couple of years he really wasn't able to deal with steph curry now steph's a, a different animal but i thought he was a little bit better getting over screens pressuring the ball I thought the Knicks did a pretty good job in the first quarter on the Embiid pick and pop. Harden actually in Embiid's big game on Friday against the Clippers, Harden was just diving up Embiid at the foul line all game long and actually had 11 assists to Embiid alone in that game on Friday. And so I thought Mitchell Robinson showed off his mobility pretty well and then they ended up kind of going away from that, letting Joel work more off the dribble from the top than necessarily in that pick and pop because of the mobility. And also they did a pretty good job of getting guys over from the weak side against Philly. And I thought they could have been even more aggressive with that, but they should have done it off of PJ Tucker's man and you know, as much as people want to talk about Tucker not taking shots, like uh, teams are still guarding him enough. Like they're not just completely mucking up the Sixers offense. Like they've won eight straight. So it's obviously working. And there, there are a few plays where guys came over, like Brunson tried to take a charge on Embiid off the pick and pop as well, but just couldn't get there and be kind of stepped around him. Uh, so th- that's always just an interesting dance of how you're going to guard that Harden and Bead pick and roll, which really is more of a pick and pop. Like he's getting the ball free throw line and further up, like not in the lane the way you would on a typical pick and roll play. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz. Find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to remember slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. 
Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the Bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout Please remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us you ready to move on to lakers mavericks yeah and for a little while it looked like the lakers had maybe found a formula but ultimately i think it was you knew as even as they were getting out to lead even as dallas only has 43 points in the first half that the way the lakers were defending was fool's gold but i don't even question the strategy they just don't have the personnel to do it any other way right i I was thinking about this when we were watching it of if you and i had been doing a broadcast of this game one of the things that would have brought up is that the lakers and to their credit i mean they were ahead 54 43 so 11 point lead in dallas at halftime but I just, I, I, what immediately popped to mind is, well, Dallas is one in seven on corner threes. And especially Dallas and some, some of it was the scheme, like corner threes are generally pretty good. And four of 15. So if you want to count it overall, that's five of 22 on threes. And it's like, well, there are teams and Dallas is one that they don't always regress to the mean from three in the same game. Like there was that one against Toronto where Toronto was basically just letting all their guys stay open and they just didn't make them in the whole game. But just like, well, that damn might break, but I didn't expect it to break as thoroughly as it did where a couple of the striking stats about that third quarter. So final margin was 51-21 of that quarter. That is the largest point disparity in a single quarter in the NBA this entire season. That's not stat from John Schumann. It beat that Nets Warriors one from a couple days ago. It was also the, the highest scoring quarter on Christmas ever and the highest scoring quarter in the NBA this season because there were yeah. a couple of 50 burgers, but this was a 51. And, and Christian Wood had a three go in and out at the buzzer that could could have made it 54 too. Yeah. And so that, so I, I mean, that that's just, I mean, so it was in some ways it's a story because there aren't as many games on Christmas and everything like that, but the highest scoring quarter of the year, the highest scoring quarter on Christmas ever, that's pretty amazing. So tactically, I thought there was a very interesting 
contrasts between how both coaches wanted to deal with the stars. So let's not remember Dory or let's not forget Dorian Finney-Smith is out for Dallas as well. So Dallas and the Lakers both starting very small. Lakers have Beverly and Schroeder in the backcourt and they don't really have anyone to match up with Luka because LeBron is not being asked to to do that at this point in his career. They got Thomas Bryant, but they're starting Lonnie Walker at the three basically. So it's, you know, Beverly, Schroeder, those are the guys guarding Luka. So they just decided, particularly early in the game, they're just going to double every single time. Luka had not taken a shot as of the seven minutes got seven minutes gone by in the first quarter and which is pretty right he usually likes to get off early in the first quarter so and it was working because the Mavs were just missing absolute batting practice check the wind threes early on block couldn't hit one you know, he, it seems like he's the most frequent culprit when they just are wide open and can't make anything and but you just felt like that dam was going to break at some point and maybe it was going to happen Towards the end of the second, Lakers come back, uh, restore order, and had the lead going into the third quarter. But in the end, you just can't withstand this barrage unless you're playing the Chicago Bulls in the playoffs. They ended up giving up 20 corner three attempts. And for reference there, usually the worst team in the league in giving up corner threes will give up about 10 or 11 a game. So, and Luca was too good. I I thought, yeah, what were we going to say, Dave? Well, I was just going to say to me, one of the the ways you can summarize that third quarter was and this ties in, of course, with the first half is that Dallas was nine of 13 on threes and Luca didn't even attempt one of them, despite being on the floor for everything but a defensive possession at the end of it. He had 13. The rest of the team had, I think, it was 38 and 27 of those 38 were on made threes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there really was not much uh, that the Lakers could do because they couldn't defend Luca one on one. I mean, Luca takes a special joy in destroying Patrick Beverly, uh, going back to that first series that they played or actually i should say more of this the second series that they played against the clippers where beverly was just tyloo had to take him off of luca like there's no way because beverly likes to just like pressure up into luca's body and so luca can just is so big he can just work to a spot and then spin or just shoot like his awesome touch floater over beverly so they they had to double team you know schroeder is no better there and I thought actually by the second half, Christian Wood started doing a good job. They really challenged him by putting two on the ball against Luka, which they didn't do against Dinwiddie in pick and roll. That clearly was a Luka-specific strategy. And Luka usually kills that, but it seemed like the plan was we're actually going to stay home on that corner shooter, at least initially. Let's leave Christian Wood open, and then let's see if Christian Wood can make the play four on three. I thought he had some struggles with that in the first half, but started to find a way. I mean, he still has a couple of times where he'll get tunnel vision, but he's starting to get some reps, get the read to make that next pass to the corner shooter. Or of course, he, he's got enough of a skill level that you have to at least step up on him. And then he can, it's impossible to guard both the corner shooters and one more player yeah, as there, well. There was a great play with that in the fourth quarter where they doubled Luca, didn't, and then Wood got the ball about the nail. And then also full credit to Spencer Dinwiddie, who who did a cut along, who did a cut along the baseline, and Wood kept his head up, found him easy dunk instead of it being like a miscue or something like that. And so Wood, he's growing in that role. And I mean, the offense was very good when he was on the floor. They started with Wood at center instead of Dwight Powell, who played 15 minutes, and then Javale, who I, I I haven't heard of an injury, so I'm guessing that's a DNP CD. Yeah, and Wood 30 points, 12 of 17 plus 16. He had four steals and two blocks and seven assists i mean this probably i mean again granted going against this lakers defense but that's probably the best overall game all-around game of his career uh to and to play 38 minutes uh, while starting so at least 
score one in the ledger for people who say hey christian wood should have been starting this whole time i'm not sure i can get there yet but uh and they went very hard on the minutes in this game as well every starter played 35 or over and their four main guys played 38 or more uh with tim hardaway also scoring 26 points and so they played Burton, Dwight Powell, and McKinley Wright the fourth, who is a two-way guy. I don't know if his name has ever even actually been mentioned on this program before because uh, they do have a lot of guys out and they needed to get at least one more ball handler in. So for the Lakers, they're obviously just trying to survive here. LeBron had 38. This is his seventh straight 30-point game. It's starting to feel a lot like it did last year. They were playing him some at center. I think they should have gone back to Thomas Bryant more. Not that Thomas Bryant is, you know, some great rotator. And yeah, you you probably have to put two on the ball and pick and roll with Thomas Bryant against Luca because he's not a good rim protector or pick and roll defender. But I think Thomas Bryant is just a good enough offensive center that he's just better than their other options offensively. So if you're going to say, hey, we're going to outscore the other team that like, let's just put Thomas Bryant out there and he's not going to be any worse defensively than just not playing a center at all. Um, so uh, what do you think uh, about that? Because he basically didn't play much uh, after his first stint. I don't think he played at all after his first stint in the third. I mean, they just don't have enough frontcourt players. So I, I think the theory of it from you is pretty pretty reasonable because I, I don't have a great counter to it. I mean, it's not like, oh, yeah. they, can, they can do X, Y, or Z. And remember, as much as people want to talk about the LeBron at center stuff last year, those lineups couldn't defend at all. Yeah, and, and they and they're not going to. I mean, they have no chance of stopping anyone. Like like the fact that they were even remotely decent with AD out there is actually a testament to how well he was playing this year because they can't. Like they just don't have the personnel. It's awful. They have no wings and they have no bigs. It's like like how are you going to stop anybody, particularly this Dallas team? Um, yeah. Any, anything else to stick out for you, Lakers wise, in this one? I mean, they had a stretch. I'm trying to remember exactly when that was where they were shooting it where they were shooting it a little well they, it wasn't the first quarter for sure where they were shooting a little better and you're like oh okay um i think that was the second and when they were started pulling out the lead guy um russ hit a three troy brown hit a three and you're like okay we're going around there but I, as you said the the level of players like i mean and yes they're dealing with some injuries to be sure the the number of players that like if i were running an nba team i would be happy with having on the floor in minutes that count in regular season is not that relative to other teams yeah we talked about how austin reeves is their third best player and it seemed that way uh he had 16 points on five of seven in this game and russ seven to 16 only played 24 minutes they were negative 30 in that period did have 17 points and four assists no turnovers uh, amazingly but part of the problem again with going small is you really you're not going to go small unless you have russell westbrook on the floor and then the other team can just put their center on him so they can kind of get the benefits of going big and we saw wood get a couple of big offensive rebounds when they actually took lebron out and still didn't put a center on the floor at that point either at at some point you'd think they got to go back and give damian jones a shot i know he's been bad this year i mean maybe he's not in, in great shape or something but he at least gave the something last year give him a chance to get back to that and you know they've been playing Wendian Gabriel over him or or going centerless so it's kind of we should probably actually talk about the news on AD to finish up on the Lakers there's the report is pretty nebulous it's very murky I was gonna yeah uh, enough so that I, I, it's basically what did they call it exactly here let me find the exact verbiage a str- I, I stress injury is i believe what woge had 
Yeah, so it's not a stress reaction or a stress fracture. It's one of the two in theory. And and although it does surprise me because it looked like usually a stress injury is something that builds up over time. Maybe he did... He, he just tweaked it enough to where he really noticed it or something. But it looked like something acute happened. I mean, I guess that makes sense because we couldn't really see an injury mechanism. Surely it's not, it, it, this would seem to rule out the idea that he, it was the result of him kind of like banging it in the air against Jokic. So it, supposedly he's now pain-free. He's going to try to ramp up a little bit. Like he hasn't been wearing a walking boot or anything either, which is kind of weird. So, I mean, it seems like, you know, maybe there's some optimism, you know, two, three weeks. I think sometimes when they come out with these reports, it's almost to maybe even just motivate your own team. It's just like, if you know he's out for the year and things are hopeless, or you know he's out for six weeks and things are hopeless, then it's like, hey, why try? But, it, but you feel like, hey, you know, if we play hard for these next two, three weeks, maybe we could pull a few victories out of our ass and and even though we know that it's not sustainable this kind of effort all season to just stay afloat because they desperately need to stay afloat here what it feels to me sort of along those lines is um i can't oh i know it was carol matt damon's character on 30 rock where he's he's a pilot and they keep on saying that it's 15 minutes and so because they know 15 minutes is the amount of time that people won't get pissed off but then also might not necessarily (laughs) think about it so it's like oh we'll find out more in two weeks but they didn't say like it, it, it didn't seem anything clear like this is this is what's wrong this is how the time now it's good that the pain has subsided which is something that I think Woj and Dave McBenman both had that's definitely a positive but what is what caused the pain how this actually resolves is is a lingering question and one that as the Lakers are now I believe they're now 13 and 19 one that will 13 and 20 13 and 20 after losing the game that will define the rest of their season yeah I mean and it's basically just they're back to the exact same team that, that they had most last year where okay you play small but you don't really shoot it enough to run up the score against the other team and if you're playing small you're also uh, at a real deficit defensively and playing small you don't have it's not like you have like guys with like a bunch of length and athleticism on the perimeter either I mean, it's just a bad team uh, like it's it, and lebron i think is going to continue to put up numbers and worth noting even now that he, he was plus two in his 34 minutes but i don't think they're going to play him more than 34 minutes he's had his own issues this season and he turns 38th on december 30th well and and also like how much do you want to push him during these where you're you're turning what would be like a sure loss into a possible maybe even a likely loss versus keeping the powder a little bit more dry and some of that challenge is like the so like the lakers right now they've had they've lost four straight lebron has had as you said like i think he's had 30 or close to 30 in basically all of these games when davis has been out but they've won so davis got hurt against the nuggets in a game they won they've won once since then and that was by two points at home against the wizards so are you putting miles on lebron in games that you are that that you you increase your chances but are you know those aren't necessarily the most useful and it's hard and it's i mean it's the idea darvin ham and rob palenka and lebron james it's like your best chance to win games but it's a it's a tightrope and i i i I hope that because that lebron has enough to go but i have this worry that it's just going to be like he's going to be working really hard now physically and he and i are basically the same age so i think about this stuff a lot and be like then he tries to kick it in because ad's back and it's like oh if we have a push now we have a chance to make playoffs and then something happens there quickly for the Mavs they had a ton of absences that's why the starters had to play so many minutes Kemba Walker had played four straight games he had a huge game getting the game where they rested everybody 
everybody to overtime and looked great against the Cavs, but he's now missed two straight due to left knee injury recovery. Uh, of course, Kleba is out as well for them. Josh Green still hasn't come back from... It's an elbow issue. I believe it's right, an elbow yeah, strain. I, I, yeah, I remember that. I, I thought he was supposed to be back, uh, but we haven't heard anything about that yet. I thought maybe he'd gotten a new injury, but no, it's still that right elbow sprain. Uh, he's been out since December 9th. And Frank Nilakina, who is, I think, health has actually been an underrated part of his struggles. He's been out for a while with the sore left knee also, which is why they had to play McKinley right with those two guys out. And Finney Smith is still out with the that adductor issue in addition to Kleba. So that was at least three guys who would normally be in their rotation who are out. But the brilliance uh, of Luca, who, by the way, just 32 points, nine assists. And they tried to go at him in pick and roll in the fourth when LeBron had 12 points in the first four minutes of the fourth but uh, they couldn't get a stop because the Mavs were raining threes and were 10 to 20 in corner threes in the end and Wood was getting a bunch of dunks around the rim so it was a uh, tough times for the Lakers right now Mavs moved to 18 and 16 they've uh, kind of been somewhat similar to the Warriors and they're now 13 and 5 at home as a professional welder Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets. From there as well, I felt really good about having them be the outfit of my wedding because all of my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. All right. Danny is now on a red eye to the East Coast as we record this. Which means get a chance to bring in Dan Feldman to talk about the last three games. Dan, enjoying that West Coast life here at a 10.57 p.m. instead of 1.57 a.m. on the East Coast. Yeah, I think my body is somewhere in between. It's probably about 12.30 a.m. for me right now. Yeah, well, let's get right to it here. And the game of the day was the last one, a 128-125 Denver Nuggets victory in overtime, despite the fact that the Phoenix Suns controlled this one throughout, even in the absence of Devin Booker. So uh, we'll talk some uh, about the end of the game, which was uh, quite the shit show. But uh, just from the overall meat of the game, uh, what were some of your big takeaways? Uh, 
I mean, Nikola Jokic is incredible. Uh, his, his control over the game is, is just something to behold. His, his scoring, his passing, um, you know, the defense is not elite by any means, uh, but he is not the problem. Well, I'm sure we'll get into the Nuggets defensive problems. Uh, Jokic had a part in them, but he is not the problem. I mean, his, his just his offensive control, his touch with the ball. I mean, this was, uh, you know, he's not going to win MVP on one game if he wins it for a third straight year, but on this date to put up 41, 15 and 15, uh, it's going to get a lot of attention as it deserves. Yeah. I was thinking about the, idea of the most skilled player in NBA history. And you throw Steph Curry out there. Obviously people talk about Kyrie Irving, Larry Bird would probably have to be in that conversation. MJ would probably have to be in that conversation, but Jokic is in there too. I mean, he's not, he doesn't do all the crazy dribbling stuff, but considering his size, he's an outstanding dribbler. You never see him like get his pocket picked when he's pushing it up full court or anything like that. One of the best passers ever. And just the shot making, like the one that he hit in the overtime where he looks at the clock at the other end, there's three (laughs) seconds left, isolated against a guard, Chris Paul, gets past Chris Paul, picks his ball up at the three-point line, takes two steps, right hand, right foot floater from 17, and it's just cash. Like he's shooting almost 60% from mid-range, not to even mention floater range and he's one of the best finishers in the league at the rim as well despite not being able to jump over a phone book because of his incredible touch and I mean the other thing I thought was amazing was just when they get him the ball at the elbow and they run the split cut actions like you know the Warriors popularized that for three pointers they'll just have two guys who aren't even necessarily shooters just interact with each other one of them will cut back door and if there's any kind of a size advantage Jokic is going to find them and I mean to me the only blemish on his game wasn't necessarily caused by him it's that they went away from him a little bit too much down the end although they managed to pull it out anyway yeah i mean it's a balancing act it wasn't that that long ago it's easy to forget but wasn't that that long ago where a big storyline with Jokic was is he aggressive enough offensively is he deferring too much now he's mostly gotten past that um but i can see how it it's possible to get away from him a little bit in a way that it shouldn't be for a score of his caliber uh, but it's so much progress from where he was it seems like Jamal Murray had it going a little bit. He had 12 points in the fourth, hit three three-pointers in pretty quick succession. And maybe there was a feeling that they just wanted to get back to the old Jamal Murray and let him cook a little bit to feel that again. And I thought he maybe was feeling it a little bit too much with some of that shot selection. Like he took a three on a fast break down one where they had a numbers advantage uh, and he probably could have got in for a layup. There wasn't really a room protector pack uh, under a minute to go and took a couple of pretty difficult fadeaways as well. But I, I understand why they did that, but I also don't think it was their best offense to win this basketball game. But hey, it all worked out anyway. Yeah, that, that three late. I mean, look at Jamal Murray. It was an interesting mix of, uh, and you can see somebody who's getting back from injury times where it just doesn't seem like he has quite the comfort level of when to be aggressive, when not as much as he used to, at least. And I think that was more noticeable early. Um, there were, there were times he was too tentative. There were times, you know, he went up for that, that big dunk. He didn't convert that, but you can see him just trying to be aggressive. And uh, it, it didn't seem to be coming naturally until late. That, that three you're talking about late. So there were two he made shortly before that. I can't remember if they were on back-to-back possessions or in quick succession. Um, I think on one, uh, he gnashed and, and went under the basket and came back out and then hit a three and then another one. 
uh, I believe was off a Jokic screen. But the one you're talking about that he missed, I thought maybe he was too open. Uh, it seemed like he had an extra beat where he kind of hesitated. Maybe Murray pre-injury doesn't hesitate and that just lets it fly and he makes it. Yeah, you could see too. Uh, Clay Thompson's been going through this as well. It, uh, uh, guys who really like can reach that incandescent level of hotness the way that Clay can and that we've seen for Jamal Murray, like in the bubble, for example, they just, they want to feel that again so badly and it can lead to them maybe hunting some shots a, a little bit, but, uh, I mean, I still, so my next takeaway though, in terms of big themes, we could talk more about the end later is, you know, CP, he did have 16 assists in this game. Still to me, I don't know if you agree, just does not look anywhere close athletically to the guy that he was at his best last season. 100% agree. Um, he, he's just not as aggressive. You know, there were opportunities to, to go for a shot. Of, you know, we haven't even said, we should just say for posterior, Devin Booker got hurt early. Uh, that groin injury again played only four minutes. And so, uh, other players said that it was not Chris Paul. He, he kept the ball moving. He was, you know, 16 assists, uh, zero turnovers, right? I mean, it's what Chris Paul does. Uh, there were, there were times late where it seemed like he was a little more aggressive and didn't quite have the rhythm because he hadn't been doing that. And the big thing I wonder, and I really don't have a clue. Is he doing this because it's a long season and he's in his late 30s and what's the point of being aggressive offensively until the playoffs? Or does he just not have that gear anymore? I, I wish I had a better sense of that because there's all the difference in the world between those two scenarios. I thought last year the usage rate did go down, but there'd be times in the fourth quarter when he would take over and you could tell that he had it. And that has been lacking so far this year. And you know, he, he even extended to the free throw line where he was a five out of 10, but six to 17 overall, he had been shooting the three more after coming back from the quote unquote heel injury that he had to miss a month. Uh, but he wasn't really aggressive from three in this game, 0 for three. But I thought just getting to his spot, it, you mentioned whether it's a confidence issue or just doesn't f- feel comfortable or doesn't have the same explosion. You know, he looks like he's always about to fall over. Like you never see him go to a dead sprint pushing the ball up, it, which hurt them when they couldn't get a two for one in overtime at the end. But his ability to just kind of stop and pop and quickly get his shot off. He's, it seems like he's rushing that. He got a shot blocked by Michael Porter Jr. Like he used to, even as recently as last year, like he was killing, you know, the likes of like Larry Nance, a good switch defender in the playoffs in isolation when they were switched. And, you know, when Michael Porter Jr. is not Larry Nance and he was able to block CP. So it just looked like he would get into a lot of situations where he just wasn't sure if he could get his shot off. Sometimes he would shoot it and get stuck or get blocked, have to throw a bailout pass to the corner where Shamit got a three in the overtime. So, and he had to play 41 minutes. They had to run a lot through him, of course, in this game. And I didn't think that he wasn't like unaggressive. It was just when he was aggressive, he just wasn't able to get the separation. So there was a play late where they, the Suns ran a one five pick and roll. And I I believe it was against drop coverage. And and Paul ended up uh, just being able to walk into a fairly open mid range jumper in, you know, in crunch time. It was the last minute of, of the fourth quarter and he missed it. And part of me wonders, you know, they the Suns had all that success last year in crunch time. That was such a big thing. And crunch time is – it's a small sample. And did we overreact to, you know, Chris Paul and Devin Booker to an extent, but especially Chris Paul just happening to be super hot in crunch time, where even if we know Chris Paul is good at those types of plays and good in those situations, uh, you know, he, I'm just talking about one single shot. But maybe we overreacted last year. And this year, it's a little bit of regression to the mean and – 
he's still somewhere in between those two things. I, I don't know. I, I really don't have a great read on what Chris Paul's capable of. I think we see what he's doing, but what he's capable of, is it far less than last year? I, I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, what makes the current era that we're in a little frustrating to analyze yeah. is that the playoffs are what matter, but he was at least dominating down the end of regular season games last year. And I just, mm-hmm. the, the way that jumper looked like, I, I remember when you're talking about right elbow, exactly the spot, but he looked like he just, he wasn't as in control as yeah. he normally is. Like he could get to a spot, rise up. It's almost like he felt like he had to go faster. He felt like he had to get it <laughs> off more quickly because he wasn't getting the same rise on it. And, you know, to obviously miss that one. It looked like he was actually like trying to jump higher than he would, would normally. It was, so uh, I hope that he can get back to it. I will say he looks, you know, he's never been like the sveltest of body, but I do think he looks a little bit heavier maybe after that layoff. And so if he can cut up a little bit, maybe some of that athleticism will return by the end of the season. Yeah, Booker could, gave it a go. He'd missed a few with this nebulous groin soreness. A side was not given and uh, he had to leave again. That's after missing time with the hamstring and as the Suns are now dropped to 19 and 15, you know, the, nobody's doing anything in the West right now, but it, we'll have to see how long he's going to miss because you never like it when you come back and re-injure the same thing. And obviously you wanted to play on Christmas. At least I, I like that guys like do try to play hard on Christmas. Like it does seem like these games matter maybe more than your average regular season game. Um, what do you think of DeAndre Ayton's game tonight? He made a lot of mid-range shots. Uh I, I see a lot of areas for concern. Uh, there, there's a play early, right? You talk about the effort guys give on Christmas. This is why it's turned out to be early, where he dropped a pass, which happens, and he's just kind of like messing around, not getting back on defense, or multiple times he can get back on defense, was maybe out of position. It's just, I, I appreciate that mid-range shot making. It's nice that you have somebody so athletic, so big, who has that element when your star scorer goes down, or, you know, there are going to be times when Booker's on the bench, right? It's helpful to have that element and all the normal things Aiton does. But I just, I don't see him as a trustworthy player. He has too many mistakes, uh, defensive breakdowns. I, I, I see all the talent and I, I see the upside and, I, and on a lot of teams, I'd want him if I'm on a championship contender, I worry about him. Yeah. And obviously, you know, there are many, even Richard Jefferson said on the broadcast, like, Oh, well, it's not, he's an obvious, you know, that, that he should have gotten paid. And like, yeah, he should have gotten paid. Should he have just been a no-brainer max contract? Like, I would, I would disagree on that. I think they used the system the way they should have. But, and again, you know, this is for longtime listeners of this show, this is no surprise. But in this game, when you've got Devin Booker out, I thought Aiton, and again, Joel Embiid is Joel Embiid, right? We saw this in the first game of the day, and I don't expect Aiton to be Joel Embiid. But I would like DeAndre Aiton to be able to, up his usage a little bit more in pick and roll with the face the basket game that involves something other than just shooting a jumper the moment he gets it. <laughs> and it, on like those short roll pick and rolls, you know, they didn't really seem to be able to get him those deep seals out of pick and roll. You know, I thought Jokic did a good job battling with him and denying him position. Uh, and that's one thing that Jokic is pretty good at. But in theory, DeAndre Ayton should have the quickness advantage on Jokic. And so to get the ball at the foul line coming downhill with a little bit of separation, but he can't, you know, pump fake and drive. Like that's not really something that he has in his game. He can't really put it on the floor. He had six turnovers in this one as well. So a few times where he really like Aiton is a willing passer when the pass is obvious, but also once he's like on the move, when he swarmed, it gets a little bit more difficult for him. So some of those six turnovers were of that ilk. He also missed a key free throw late uh, that could have put the game away instead 
or, or at least put him up three instead of two, and then Murray got the tying dunk after that. So I do think Aiton still does about as good of a job as you can guarding Jokic individually, even as, as crazy as it is to say with Jokic's ridiculous stats. But And I think he, he makes it at least somewhat hard for him on post-ups, which, you know, maybe there's 10 guys in the league, maybe fewer than that, who can do that. But, you know, Jokic is still so skilled, it, it doesn't matter if you get him the ball on the move. It, it, he doesn't have to just post up one-on-one. So he does add value that way. Uh, you know, hasn't really been impressive as a room protector to me this season or in this game, but he's stuck to Jokic. So, yeah, I think it's uh, – we were hoping, again, to see more from DeAndre Ayton, and it, it seems like he really has kind of plateaued the last season and a half or so. Yeah. Um, you brought up the contract. I was always so curious of if the Suns made a mistake just in terms of if it's likely enough he's going to get paid in the long run anyway – if you keep him happy, will that make him more engaged? Will that make him work harder? Or are you better off from that mental standpoint having him going after the contract? And now that he now he has the contract, and we're just seeing a lot of the same things. I don't know if it would have made a difference or not. It, either approach, like it plateau is. I don't know if that's completely fair. I mean, some of the the mid range jumping or jumpers, you know, he, he's making. You know, that's I think there were additions in his game, but. Uh, the area it needs to come in is sharpening his defense, avoiding some of these mistakes rather than expanding his game. Yeah, I, I guess that's fair. I mean, I, but I, I felt like I had hoped that this year that they could give DeAndre Ayton more of the ball to create some plays, and, and it just doesn't appear he's capable of that. But, you know, it was a banner game for some shooting guards off the bench, Landry Shamit. Played 39 minutes. That's, I'm guessing, pretty close to a Suns high and 31 points almost certainly, I would guess, is a, uh, may, might even be a career high, but I'm guessing for sure a Suns high. And the most impressive number to me is just getting up 17 three point attempts, seven of 17, 10 of 20 from the field overall. And so 31 points for him plus three. He, I mean, even, even was doing a little bit of backup point guard for them as well uh, with the uh, campaign who's also out right now. I mean, the Suns are very, very shorthanded. Remember camp Johnson's out too for them. So uh, I thought he, that was really good. Like to add that movement shooting element, they really didn't have much else in terms of creation offensively. And they ran a lot of plays for him and, and he delivered. Uh, he also scored 31 against the wizards last week. So, uh, okay. <laughs> tie, well, tie to tie within the week. Me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, Sh- Shaman did a great job of taking advantage of his quick release. I, you know, the Nuggets defense uh, fell asleep a few times. Jamal Murray uh, got eaten up on some screens as Shamit came off and couldn't stick with him. And it doesn't take much space. He gets those shots up. Um, you know, sometimes you watch him do this and you wonder why he, he isn't a more effective offensive player more often. Yeah, and I never, you know, his, his jumper kind of waxes and wanes. Like, it is a pretty flat shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I mean, my bigger concern with that signing was, wasn't the regular season. It was just that, uh, or I should say the trade for him and then signing. It was just that the defensive concerns about him in the playoffs. And then Damian Lee is continuing a banner season. Like where would the Suns be without him in the absence of Cam Johnson? He was a further four of five from three. And it was funny. He's shooting it incredibly well. He's got to be shooting like 48%, I think this year. So, mm-hmm. uh, He's and the big problem with him with the Warriors down the end of last year was he couldn't make shots. Um, so yeah, he's been fantastic for them, giving them just some movement in the half court as well, and you know executing the system defensively. 
I mean, with, with those two guys, the, the Suns made 49% of their three, 17 of 35. I, I thought the Nuggets outplayed Phoenix in this game. Uh, oh, and, oh yeah, not even I close. Mean, and, and I thought that even when the Suns were up, I couldn't figure out why the Suns were up other than they just hit a lot of their threes. Um, Lee and Shamit did a good job of moving to create good looks, but, but to combine to, you know, make 11 of 22, that's over their heads. And, uh, you know, the, the rest of the team was shooting pretty hot. Um, and that's why they were in it. Yeah. And, and for Denver's part, I mean, Aaron Gordon, seven of his 11 field goals made were dunks. And the only marks. including, <laughs> I, how, I was wondering how long we were going to go. And I, I got a diversion. We got to talk about Eric Gordon's dunk. Yeah. At, at the end. I mean, that was one of the best dunks ever on Christmas. And, and the, the most hilarious part of it to me was, I mean, if you haven't seen it yet, just go and look at the highlight of his dunk on Landry Shamit. Pretty dumb decision, actually, probably to go for that uh, in that you situation. Uh, I think you're not alone in thinking that. And I, I don't. Well, I mean, so, Aaron Gordon has the ball. What What do you want Aaron Gordon to do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess they're they're up one. Well, no, what what they? I think there was there a differential there. I think there was. Um, I think there was like a three a, a three or four second differential. Mm-hmm. So I think they should have just run the time down at that point, and uh, instead he went in transition for one of the most ridiculous two foot dunks that I've seen. Landry, Landry Shamit is set up to take a charge. I'd say maybe what like three feet outside the restricted area, and Gordon just takes off at two feet, one hand, and just goes right through Shamit. Charge is called, and then they go to this review, <laughs> which is. Uh, you know, same thing with the, like the goaltending rule at the end where it's like, oh, well, let's, we got a review to check if he's in the restricted area. And uh, this rule doesn't make any sense, Dan, to, to me, like the trigger, but then you can overturn it. If it's not a, uh, if he's not in legal guarding position with something that has nothing to do with the restricted area, but you can only <laughs> check if you think he might have been in the restricted area. That doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. I, I don't think he was that far. Uh, in front of the restricted area, if you're just going by like the back of his heel, especially because he's also, well, it's close to that, you know, also because he's maybe moving back on it. That gets him even closer to the restricted area. For me, I don't know. I just want the correct calls to be called and quickly, however we need to do to go about that. And, uh, well, they got it correct in the end, I think. Yeah, he was moving his torso subtly to, to the left and, and going yeah, up I, a little bit too. Yeah. So I'm, but I just, the restricted area needs to be bigger if you can get dunked on on the <laughs> ground on a charge and it's and it's called a charge like it just the the restricted area was came into being 20 years ago now athletes are better just expand it uh, there's no reason to have guys taking a charge in that situation when someone's going up for a dunk but uh yeah they, they got the uh, but yeah so they were and, ex- and expanded even more in games Aaron Gordon is playing <laughs> yeah yeah it's true I mean he was he was flying all over this. I mean, obviously he had this dunk. Um, but, but I thought just, just such a great game of activity, aggressiveness. He had 28 points, 13 rebounds. Um, he's not like the most sound defender, but he applied his athleticism so well on both ends of the court, crashing the glass, seven offensive rebounds, uh, going back up. What'd you say? Seven of the 11 makes were dunks. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, he had his legs tonight. Yeah, now uh, on the season, Aaron Gordon coming in was 67% true shooting, which would be a career high by over 7%. And it, it went up tonight. And yeah, he also 8.7% offensive rebound. That is a career high by almost 3%. So he just, he's just been working. 
using his physicality, playing off of Jokic, uh, receiving passes. Uh, I've really enjoyed his season. And you know, we were concerned about the lack of spacing. He's taking the occasional three and making 38%. I think that's still not something that teams are concerned about, but he's active enough offensively that it kind of doesn't matter. And Jokic can operate from the elbows as well. And also just make passes to him in such tight spaces that any has got that vertical spacing. So yeah, he, he's been fantastic so far this season. Maybe hasn't had the exact same level of defensive impact that he's had in the past. However, the Nuggets are the number one clutch defense in the NBA, despite being very low overall, as you noted earlier. Maybe some luck involved there, but worth noting that that's been a a part of why they've been able to be successful. And I thought their defense was really good. Like KCP had a couple of big steals and pressures on Landry Shamet, and then he got eaten from behind for a steal. So they did raise their intensity down the end. Yeah, I I mean, not down the end, but I thought Bruce Brown had his moments. Like, this this is a team that I – maybe this is why they're good in the clutch, where maybe I'm just looking for a reason to explain something that's just a small sample. But I, I feel like they – they can dial it up at, at times. A lot of their defensive problems are inattentiveness over the course of a game. But when they lock in, I'm not saying it's great, but it does seem a lot better. Another big point for me is the Nuggets bench struggling. They're up 15 mm-hmm. early, and they kind of fall apart. The Phoenix leads by six at halftime. Bones Highland, one of six, 0 of five from three, two turnovers. His defense hasn't been good. He was negative 13 in 14 minutes. They were very judicious with the bench minutes with uh, no Vlatko Chanchar either, who's been, I don't think he, I didn't see anything about him being hurt, but he's been uh, in the rotation at times recently. Michael Porter Jr., though, kind of an afterthought tonight. Yeah, three for 11, 0 for five on threes, finished with seven points, did not really uh, make much of an impact. Uh, at one point during the game, I said, oh, I wonder how Michael Porter Jr. is doing because I have not noticed him. Yeah, he played 35 minutes and quietly. Yeah, it's, it, he just did not really feature at all. And they're not paying him a max contract. He probably should have featured more honestly in our worst contracts. And I, because he was out and so maybe he wasn't top of mind for me. And he'd been hitting shots early, but it, other than, you know, he doesn't seem to have the same explosiveness. But if you're not really running plays for him and getting him shots, within the flow of the offense a lot of his value is decreased though i thought his, his defense was fine tonight uh, but th- that obviously is something to watch for this denver team I and mean, how are you feeling about the nuggets here uh, we'll talk a little bit about the end of the game but uh, just uh, overall this season are you buying because we haven't talked about this are you buying them as you know real contenders for for the west or, or to win the championship yeah i tend to have a wider pool of contenders than most people do um I think the Nuggets have a chance. They are, they're first in the West. They're, I mean, Jokic is awesome. We, we've seen him step up in the playoffs year after year. Um, if there were any way for their bench not to bleed the lead quite as much, he'd feel a lot better. I mean, tonight it was uh, with Jokic on. Uh, he played 44 minutes. The Nuggets were plus 11. And then in the other nine minutes, what that makes them, uh, minus eight. And it's like that over and over and over. Um, you know, Bones Highland was kind of a uh, Michael Porter Jr. version of the bench off the bench. He was one for six for three points. Um, and worst defense, you know, was, I would not say it was just okay like Porter's was. And it, it's, yeah, it's, uh, if it were just the starters, I'd feel a lot better about the Nuggets. Uh, and you get in the playoffs, obviously rotation shrink. That's probably to their advantage, but probably don't shrink enough. <laughs> so it's just a few plays I wanted to talk about that I thought were interesting from the end. We didn't necessarily have to go through possession by possession areas. We've talked a lot about this game already, but, and, and about some of the themes at the end. 
uh, you know, Jamal Murray got the tying dunk on a handoff after Aiton missed one out of two free throws that could have increased it to three. They had, I think, about 12 seconds left. And that play, I thought it was interesting. We're starting to see really an awareness by the team that's up two to not give up a three. Like, you don't want to allow yourself to lose the game. And so it seems like maybe we're starting to get a little bit of game theory now where teams are adjusting. Jamal Murray goes right down the lane. Nobody from the weak side even thinks about helping. Obviously, Aiton wasn't going to because he would have been helping off the of Jokic, but they didn't want to help because there were guys available on the weak side. And, and, you know, Murray did get a blow by on Bridges. But I thought it's interesting that just it seemed like everyone was so worried about not giving up the three that they just gave up the tying dunk. And obviously, Denver won it in overtime. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I wanted to get your, your opinion more on that play because I, I wasn't really sure what, what to think. Uh, Chris Paul, I thought, had a chance to tag Murray rolling down the or, or I guess not tag but 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 maybe help on Murray just a little rolling down the lane without leaving somebody open from three and then Tory Craig was, was near the basket and Gordon was in the dunker spot also a chance help but I'm not sure if they should have I'm not sure if either one of them rotating over was going to leave somebody too open obviously you don't want to give well, up the well dunk, it wouldn't but have it wouldn't have been a higher percentage shot than <laughs> I mean it, 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 I know the math on it is you don't want to go down one although Keep in mind, whether they tie it or you go down one, you still have a chance to come back in this scenario on the other end. But yeah, I, I mean, I think it's particularly because I would say Phoenix is kind of the underdog mm-hmm. in this game that I might have been a little bit more aggressive saying, all right, Denver, you want to take a three and try to beat us now when you're at home and we're, we're the underdog and, and you're you're playing well. And Nikola Jokic is in the, in the midst of a ridiculous game and he's plus 12 and we know he's going to be out there for the whole overtime. Yeah, I think I would have tried to take away the two a little bit more in that specific situation. Other times, the math well, changed a little bit. Yeah. I mean, especially Torrey Craig and Aaron Gordon. Like, I, that's not even helping off a three. A that's shooter, just, yeah. right. That's just helping off somebody who's positioned to to maybe just dunk it. If uh, you make Murray not dunk, I mean, I I don't know if you can assume that with it where everything Murray is that he's going to drive down and dunk like that. Um, I don't yeah. know. I really don't know what the right defensive play there was. Well, the the other thing too is just it was such a blow by right. that it's just it's I mean it's tough if you're outside the lane and someone gives up a blow by from the three point line like it's actually it's tough to get over there yeah uh, and so and then uh, after that then they actually called the slip the screen foul where. Uh, I, th- I think it was KCP tried to go yep. under. They ran like a guard guard screen and it was the same call. This was actually in the league's points of education video, their most recent one where Clay Thompson did the same thing, tried to slip the screen. The defender on the, the ball handler tries to go under and Clay just ran him over against the Cavs and Steph got a wide open three. This time the referees uh, made the call. That's tough though because you think that's like, that's an illegal screen. I guess you just, you have to get out of the guy's way if you're, that slip man, but you're trying to get out of there to create the space to get open. So that was, it was a good play by KCP uh, drawing that foul. But then they inbounded to Jamal Murray in the backcourt, 4.7 left out of timeouts. And it just, you know, there's no play really being run. Jokic, maybe it's tough to get it to him in that situation, you know, dribbling the ball up necessarily against Aiton, but uh, they could at least have hit like Murray and Jokic could have interacted with one another. I thought there was time for that. And instead, Murray one on one against Bridges just got his jumper blocked. Yeah, I I did not think that was a great uh, possession by the Nuggets at the end. One of the tough things that I think it's underestimated is when you're shooting that late. 
Bridges could perfectly time that up because he knows what time Murray has to release it by. It's right at the buzzer, and that makes it easier to block. In the overtime, uh, one thing that stuck out to me, the Suns have a chance to bring it up for the two-for-one and down one. This is right before the Gordon dunk. And Chris Paul can't really push it up, but then he also... And this is, I think, after is yeah. This is after Jokic missed a, a post up fadeaway. Had to tell DeAndre Ayton the play. Like it, it, it <laughs> took time for Chris Paul to like point him into position, get him to set the screen, and then they brought Shamit off a, a screen from the weak side. Shamit could have hit a three uh, that that would have given him the lead, but missed it. Um, and then he had another one that could have tied it late uh, after uh, Gordon and Murray both hit, hit one out of two free throws. Uh, so. Yeah, that that was disappointing that DeAndre Ayton, like, not knowing the play was part of why they didn't get that two-for-one in the end, although then Gordon went for the went for the dunk anyway and kind of erased the mistake. <laughs> um, anything else on this one? I think I'm pretty much... Uh, the one uh, other th- note I had was uh, Mikhail Bridges, I thought, did an adequate job of... You know, he's, he's got to play a little bigger this year with, with Jay Crowder out, uh, spending yeah. more time matched up with somebody like Eric Gordon, where he's at a physical disadvantage, and... Uh, you know, I just thought he did an adequate job of, of battling through that. Not, not the easiest thing to do. Yeah, there was one time Aaron Gordon tried to post him up uh, and Bridges blocked a shot. Bridges actually had four block shots in this game. And I thought when he did get the ball at the three-point line, he was a little bit more aggressive. Still only got up five threes in 40 minutes. But uh, he's it's kind of awkward because he has that long looping motion. But he's able to shoot on the move a little bit more in this game. Went two for five. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Let's turn now to what we thought was the main event before this day began, and that was Boston in Milwaukee. Chris Middleton was not able to make it back. Fifth consecutive game that he was out with this knee soreness. So it is not the same knee that he suffered the MCL injury in last postseason. Um, I thought it was notable at the start of the second quarter. Mike Budenholzer said, yeah, you know, they're shooting really well. I think Boston was 6-10 of 10 from three in the first. Like, yeah, you know, we really hope the percentages catch up to us. Uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> the Celtics are a great shooting team and, and shot especially great. Uh, I, w- I watched a lot of this through the prism of how would this translate to a playoff series between these teams? Because that's what we're all hoping for, maybe to a degree, expecting. And, you know, I, the Celtics are not going to make 49% of their three-pointers every game. But this is a great shooting team. Like, you can't just uh, wish it away and, and think it's going to, you know, be even average. They're going to be above average. The question is going to be how much above average. Yeah, obviously, Jason Tatum was the start of that, and he wasn't really that reliant on the three-pointer. Certainly, his teammates making shots uh, was helpful, but he was 14-22 to and also 10-10 to from the foul line. And I think the biggest difference to me in Tatum's game this season is his scoring from two-point range and 
He didn't do it as much at the rim in this one, uh, but for him to go 11 to 15 from two point range against this Bucks defense, which is where two pointers go to die, that was incredibly impressive for me to put up 41 points uh, against this team. I thought Tatum and Jalen Brown to a degree too were just so unbothered by the Bucks smaller wings. Pat Connaughton, who's a good defender, uh, it just seemed like they just shot right over him. Those, those two point jumpers. Grayson Allen got picked on. A lot. Wes Matthews. Oh, yeah. it, it, it was just, uh, you know, this is why I wonder if Middleton being healthy would make a difference. Middleton's a good defender. But he's also just a little bit taller. And, and maybe that's just what you need. Tatum's got that nice high release. It's, it's going to be tough regardless. Tatum's a great player. Um, but I, I do feel like that's where they especially miss Middleton. Yeah. And also the Milwaukee Bucks are going to be in a drop coverage. And we've seen Jason Tatum when he has struggled. It's been, and I think he's gotten better at it this year, but it was against good switching defenses against the Warriors in the finals when he couldn't beat the likes of Draymond Green and Kevon Looney. And the Bucks have defensive player of the year candidate Brooke Lopez and defensive player of the year candidate Giannis Antetokounmpo both out there. But when the, since they have those guys, they're almost invariably, we, we saw it maybe a little bit when they had P.J. Tucker back in 21 where they switched more, but largely they just stick to that drop cover. And I think Jason Tatum, it's just very easy for him. You know, you remember he had that crazy 46 point game in game six last year too. It's just very easy for him to get comfortable. You know, sometimes he'll be going against a Drew Holiday or something, but they could set a guard screen to get him the matchup that he wants. I don't think he's worried about Pat Connaughton, particularly when he could just come off a screen uh, and get the ball on the move. And he's got all that great spacing. Uh, the Bucks really had no answers for him. It, they put up a buck 39 in this game against Milwaukee. How are you feeling about Brooke Lopez as a defender right now? I mean, I, I thought he was just so neutralized by the Celtics going five out and he, he just did not have that level of impact. And a lot of uh, what Brooke Lopez does taking away the rim, I think the theory is, and the Celtics really actualized it today, is eventually you're going to run into a team and it's going to be more likely deeper in the playoffs. And it's just really good at making jumpers and you're not going to bother them in the same way. And then on top of that, I thought when Robert Williams came in, his vertical spacing uh, gave Brooke Lopez some problems at times. This was, I did not think a very good defensive game from Brooke Lopez and maybe in a way that, that worries me a little bit. Yeah, 18-20 at the rim for Boston and 9-17 from floater range uh, and then got to the foul line for 25 attempts uh, as well. They did shut off the offensive glass. Boston's not really an offensive rebounding team. So, yeah, I didn't think it was Brooke Lopez's best game uh, defensively. But there have been other games, and particularly in the playoffs last year, where he and Giannis totally walling off the rim did cause problems for this team. So I'm not going to say that this the strategy is not going to work against them, but I do think Boston is better offensively this year than they were last year. I mean, basically everyone on this team has gotten better, you know, unless Al Horford ends up with some issues. Um, I think also just adding Malcolm Brogdon as well and Marcus Smart, like the, those two guys – just the, the way that they get penetration or even that they can attack some of the weaker links, whether that's a Grayson Allen, who anytime Smart or Brogdon had the ball in any kind of a scramble situation, they started going after Grayson Allen, particularly when those rim protectors aren't quite in position. Uh, so that was effective. Like Smart only had two field goals, but both of them were drives. And then he also uh, had eight assists. It was a pretty good passing game on his drives. So, uh, yeah, I mean, everything was really working for them. They went with, interestingly, Derek White rather than Grant Williams. Like, they've gotten a little bit smaller uh, under Joe Missoula, but I think that that paid off uh, as well. So, 
uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens when these guys get to Milwaukee and who has home court and all that. And once Middleton comes back, he's been really bad this year. Hopefully he can get back. I, I thought the other thing, though, that would maybe give me a little bit of concern and maybe Chris Middleton can help with this, but maybe not. Giannis just pretty much ineffective around the basket offensively tonight. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so one thing I, I, I should say in terms of Tatum and to a lesser degree Brown and I said maybe Middleton would, would help. So could Giannis. If this game mattered more, I think Giannis would spend some time guarding Jason Tatum more than he did. And, and that could make a difference. And I think the same thing is true offensively. Uh, I think for the Bucks to beat the Celtics, most likely, I, there are some other routes to it, but most likely Giannis is just going to have to will the Bucks to victory. And he's capable of that. I don't think he was in that type of attack mode today. I don't think he was looking to take on that burden, but in the playoffs, like we've seen him do that. He is capable. Um, you know, he made some of those mid range jumpers. I, ideally, he's not taking as many of those, but that does need to be a, a counter for him when the paint is, is walled off. You know, Al Horford did a, a good job of defending him. The, the Celtics sent some other bodies at him. And when he can't get all the way to the rim, uh, he's got to be able to hit that either a pull up or a runner, or he can hit that from different angles. And he did all right with that today. Yeah, it was a really weird shot chart for Giannis. Only two of three at the rim. 0 of 5 from floater range. Now, he did get to the foul line for 8 out of 12, and some of those obviously were rim attacks. But yeah, then 6 of 9 for mid-range, and he did look very comfortable with that mid-ranger. The three-pointer, he was too aggressive with it again. Yeah. 1 out of 5. Back-to-back airballed three-pointers mm-hmm. as well. Um, So I think, you know, just dribbling into that mid-ranger where he was more comfortable. Like, I, I agree that's an important shot, and maybe uh, if Chris Middleton were healthy, he could get more as the role man, or at least his gravity could open things up. Uh, we did see a little bit of that, him running pick and roll with Joe Ingles, getting to his left hand, and Joe got downhill, had, had a nice fake on Blake Griffin and got a layup because everyone was worried about Giannis trying to uh, uh, roll down the middle of the lane. Uh, so maybe we'll see a little bit more of that, but... I think also Joe Ingles kind of compromises their defense a a little bit as well. And it's kind of, if you're going to play him and Grayson Allen together, I'm also worried actually, I I really have liked what Javon Carter has given these guys this year. And he only got 13 minutes in this one. And I think I actually kind of, he might be to me, like I might like him more than Grayson Allen and Joe Ingles. It's just, you have these nightmares for Bucks playoffs past them, just not being able to make a three. So it's, and that's where Javon Carter is a little bit of a question mark. But I, I kind of like the Bucks just leaning into just being incredible on defense. And then, you know, we'll let Giannis and Brooke Lopez and Middleton and Holiday with the occasional step back three carry us home. Yeah. Um, I mean, Javon Carter, another smaller player that if he ends up on Tatum or, or Jalen Brown, I just, once those guys get going, especially, they don't, won't always look this good. But man, it just seemed like those smaller Bucks guards just had no chance of even bothering Tatum and Brown. Um, Drew Holiday had an awesome mm-hmm. end to the second quarter. Mm. It, it got a couple of steals, hit a step back, a floater. Um, and this is with Giannis out of the game, and that actually got the Bucks back into contact. But Boston quickly restored order. The transition take foul, it's starting to get perverted by the quote-unquote legitimate attempt at the ball. Like, Holiday got away with one of those on a three-on-one, just, you know, ridiculous gamble. Like, just call that a take foul. It's not, but it's not going to. And they were doing that at the start of the year, and then they changed it to not do that, which was killing me. Yeah, I mean, the incentive now is to just overly aggressive go for a steal. And if you get the steal, great. And if you foul them, oh, well, that's what you want to do. And this is the way to get away with it. I, I don't really 
know how to find the exact balance. And I'm sure we're going to talk more about the transition take foul uh, in a few moments. Um, I thought Marcus <laughs> Smart had a had an excellent game. Like this is how you want your point guard to play when you have oh, Jason yeah. Tatum and Jalen Brown. You know, keep the ball moving. He's not dominating the ball. He has eight assists. He, he, in a lot of ways, he looks like sort of that secondary cre- uh, connector, that cre- you know, secondary creator that uh, who keeps the ball moving and gets it to the stars. You know, he'll go set a screen. Like th- this is what you want from Marcus Smart on this team. Yeah, and I think it, it didn't start very well, but I think ultimately having him be the full time point guard for this team really has changed their destiny. It's made them mm-hmm. so much better on both ends, and I think. Tatum, too, another thing that I've liked about him is, and Smart being able to get him the ball in spots as part of this, is just his uh, ability to catch the ball with a slight advantage and make a quick move, a quick decision. Like, he loves catching the ball and making a quick spin move to his left hand. Uh, He had one along the baseline that was really nice when he was kind of trapped. And so... His mid-ranger is so good that guys are selling out to stop that, or his three-pointer is so good that if he can make a quick decision when he's got separation and, and get into the lane, that's something I think he's just... He's made like these incremental improvements this year that are really a- adding up to make him a, an MVP candidate. Uh, I think that's about all I got uh, on this one, though. You know, let's see when the Bucks are, are healthy. We're hoping we could see Middleton finally because we didn't see it at all last year, but unfortunately he was out. So, uh, but it, it was it, the Bucks are still a really good defense, and Boston absolutely lit them up. Yeah, just, just a couple other things to mention. Uh, the, the Bucks shot. Uh, 13 for 36, which is 36% on three pointers. I feel like a lot of people thought, oh, that, that'd be a little higher in the long run with the looks they were getting. I, I disagree. I, I thought a lot of the quote unquote open looks were open because maybe a guy was uh, another couple feet behind the three point arc than he would like to be, or maybe wasn't completely squared up or that. I just didn't feel like a lot of those were great in rhythm looks to be a much higher percentage where the Celtics, on the other hand, I felt like they got a lot of anytime there's like a, a tip ball or something where there's a little bit of chaos. It just seemed to find its way into a, a Celtics player's hands uh, beyond the arc and he'd make the shot, which part of that is luck. But part of that is you just put a bunch of three point shooters out there. Whenever you do get the lucky bounce, you're really primed to take advantage. Uh, and then the one other thing I want to mention, Derek White, he was a team high plus 20. Uh, he, he hit two or three, three pointers. He had five assists. I thought passing is what he did actually well. I not think he had a very good game though. Um, I, I thought he had some, uh, defensive struggles, got hung up on screens, uh, got beat on times. He didn't move the ball as quickly as he should. I just praised Marcus Smart for that. I didn't think he was, uh, Derek White is often good at that. I didn't think particularly was, although the plus 20 would disguise it. Fair enough. Yeah. Especially with the way the Celtics shoot the ball. I did think that Grant Williams, who was also plus 20 in this game was fantastic again. Mm-hmm. You know, his ability to just not get knocked backwards by Giannis and at least force him into a, a mid-ranger remains impressive and he hit all three of his three pointers in the big boston run uh, that put them up 20 end of the third uh, beginning of the fourth uh, and his ability to just incremental improvements to pump fake take a dribble along the three-point line uh, and make those shots just to get his usage up a little bit more uh, pretty impressive he came off the bench in this one but he's kind of like a, been a co-starter for this team and Robert Williams still looks pretty decent. You wonder about him in this specific matchup because they don't really want him to be switching on to Giannis at all. Uh, And so he's kind of been easing in. They they didn't really need a a ton from him. But yeah, I mean, guys who have been really good for this team, Sam Hauser, Peyton Pritchard, Luke Cornett, with everyone healthy for Boston, like they're actually quite deep 
at this point. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, by the time like Peyton Pritchard comes in and garbage, I'm like, oh yeah, that guy is not a bad player. Yeah, no, I mean, he, he would be in the rotation for most teams for sure. And we probably didn't even mention Jalen Brown enough either with 29 points, five of nine from three. Again, someone who saw him at Cal, he has worked really hard on his games. So over 80% from the line now. He's shooting threes, like coming off of pin downs. Like the Drew Holiday's guarding him on a wide pin down. Drew goes under. He just steps back down the three point line, drains it. You know, really just a, an impressive skill development. Like he is another guy. He and Tatum both both get better every year, uh, which is really impressive. All right, let's talk the final game of the day here. Our final Golden's, game. Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, I can always count on you for uh, those sorts of questions. I, I <laughs> can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, it's <laughs> so, a perfect segue into transition take fouls. <laughs> all right. All right. So you've been champing a bit to, to talk about this. Uh, uh, you texted me about it earlier. So I guess you went back and watched the video. Uh, Steve Kerr went ballistic when they tried to foul Steven as I'll try to set the scene. Uh, I think it was after a made free throw Grizz inbound the ball. Desmond Bain is kind of jogging up. John Morant throws it back to him. And as that happens behind the play, an intentional foul is given on Steven Adams. Steve Kerr goes completely eight chip. He gets a technical and a transition take foul is called even after a made free throw. You rewatched the video. I, it was actually was reminiscent of something that was in that video, at least to me. I haven't watched it again though. What are your thoughts? I don't think this is a, I mean, first of all, I have no idea what a transition take foul is. It's a new rule. The NBA has its wording. I don't know. But the way I read it, I don't see how this is. First of all, in the spirit of the rule, nobody thinks this should be. I mean, this was after, so here, here is the rule. Uh, during, it's a transition take foul. If it's either one during a transition scoring opportunity, we'll get more to that. I don't think it qualifies as that. Or immediately following a change of possession and before the offensive team has the opportunity to advance the ball. Do we think this was immediately following the change, a change of possession? It was after a made free throw. They had already inbounded it. it. So I, I would, I would say this doesn't, to me, qualify immediately following a change of possession. Well, so a transition opportunity, that video defines it as when the offense is continuously advancing the ball. And once the offense isn't continuously advancing the ball and they get into their half court set, like Bain was kind of jogging up the floor. So maybe that's what they saw. But I think this again was maybe more just a, like, the referees see that video too. Like that, that video comes from what Monty McCutcheon and company are telling them. And so we may find out that that was the wrong call in the end, but it didn't surprise me because there was an example of an intentional foul. This one was to like get a guy off the floor due to injury when, you know, like a relatively mundane situation might have been after a missed free throw. It was after a missed uh, free throw, which I think is a big difference yeah. from a make a free throw make. Yeah. So maybe it's not a transition take fall. And it was, it it was also, it was also before a pass, right? So if you're going to say it's immediate change, I don't know what, when immediate change of possession ends, but I would say once you pass ahead, it's no longer that. Right. And so if if we agree it wasn't immediate change of possession, then it's uh, a transition opportunity. That's when the offensive team is continuing to advance the ball while as an advantage based on the speed of play, the position of defenders or both. I don't think that was the case either. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so the, uh, had it not been for that call, the, the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, <laughs> they, they, they could have lost by, uh, or, or, or the Warriors, they, they could have won by 16 instead of 14 as it turned out. So, so let's turn to that. Obviously the three point shooting 
was number one, 18 of 44 for Golden State. And it wasn't actually their main three-point shooters. Thompson was 3 of 12. Poole, although he did have 32 before getting thrown out, uh, was 3 of 10. It was the support guys that, that really went crazy from downtown for Golden State. Uh, Ty Drome, Anthony Lamb, the, the two-way contract guys, they, they had awesome games. Uh, part of it was shooting. You're making your shots. You always look better. Uh, but both of them, I thought, uh, passing, defending, uh, putting the ball on the floor uh, for Jerome. Like, I thought both of those guys uh, had excellent games. Yeah, and for Memphis, I mean, they're just a few of the old bugaboos came out in this game. You know, obviously three point shooting was one of them. You would hope that Desmond Bain, who was at a miserable night, 0 for 7 from three, 2 at 13 overall. He's, he's making his way back. He, he was, I, I'm confident that in the aggregate, he's going to hit shots over the course of a playoff series, but they don't necessarily really have anyone else that particularly scares you in that department and jaw. For all of his brilliance in this game, he went two out of 10. Uh, his three point shooting was great to start the year. Now he's down uh, below 34% after tonight's game. And so, so that's one issue, obviously, that the Grizz can go cold from the outside. They did that in both of their losses after Ja went down in San Francisco in the playoffs. So that's one issue. The next one is Jaron Jackson Jr. picking up the most asinine fouls, which he's largely <laughs> avoided this year. But, oh, my God, were there some – I mean, there were fouls, but just incredibly dumb plays by him. Yes, uh, five fouls in 21 minutes. Uh, I think one was offensive. But, I mean, just the, the weirdest, poorly timed grabs right in officials. I mean, this was uh, – Definitely, uh, yeah, a wrong direction yeah. for him. I, I mean, the few of these, right? Like, it's who was coming down the lane. I think it was like Kavan Looney coming down the lane. He's got two fouls and isn't able to go vertical. Tries to block the shot. Like that's one where you just you go vertical. You make Kavan Looney make a play around you with the two fouls early in the second quarter after you already had to go out. There was the reach in on the DHO, like on the first possession of the third quarter where he just gets his hand and he definitely reached in, right? And Draymond Green tried the QB keeper, intentionally went right through his arm and then gave a nice little four signal to the Memphis bench indicating that he had four fouls. And then even the worst one was someone was running. He comes right back in the game, actually makes a couple of plays and picks up his fifth just like holding the screener who was like trying to flip the angle of a screen, like 25 feet from the basket, setting a screen for like Dante DiVincenzo or something. It was just, so it, it was definitely a throwback to last year. And, uh, you know, they, they are not going to beat the Golden State Warriors. I don't think if the Warriors are at full strength, we can talk about more about just what that concept even is, but they're not going to beat that team with Jaron Jackson playing 21 minutes. Like, because I think actually the Grizz, don't match up as well with Golden State defensively as they did in previous years because Golden State got a lot of back cuts in this game. This is without Steph Curry, too. And part of what made Memphis such a bear for Golden State to deal with was they had all these sharks like Melton. Jackson does fall into that category. Kyle Anderson, guys who just would get their long arms on balls or could come over and make plays at the rim when guys would get open on the back door and then they would blow the layup or just have to pass out again. And uh, Memphis doesn't have those guys anymore, right. really. Like maybe Zaire Williams could be that. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, 
I guess I, I'm going on here. Maybe this is not a point you want to elaborate on, but it, it does seem like defensively they aren't don't match up with Golden State as well. The hope would be they match up better offensively now. Well, one area where the Grizzlies do have a, a pronounced matchup advantage is John Morant. Uh, no Gary Payton the second anymore as a, I don't know if I want to even say John Morant stopper, John Morant slower. Uh, Dante DiVincenzo, I, I did not think held up particularly well in that, in that role. John Morant, 36 points tonight and he just he just gets going so fast you, you're out of position just a little bit you, you blink just a little bit he is going to take advantage he, he's going to get all the way into the paint finish at the rim um the warriors could have uh, been sharper defending him but it, it does not take much for for him to have a crease yeah he had a big run at the end of the second quarter when the grizz got back into contact and a lot of that was in transition i think he hit either one or both of his threes during that period as well. I thought that other than that, they did a decent enough job on him, forced him into some floaters, which he made pretty well. 36 points, 15 to 29 in 41 minutes, eight assists, but six turnovers. Like that's a big, that's a number to monitor for him always, but particularly I think going against this team. So I, I and I, Jonathan Kaminga, I think is an interesting guy guarding Jai. You know, that, that'll be one possibly to watch it as well. But yeah, it'd be nice if they had Gary Payton, but you know, they, uh, and we didn't get to see a full playoff series of Jai against this team. No Andrew Wiggins in this game either for Golden State. So there's no Steph, no Wiggins. Wiggins remains out with this, uh, seems like a pretty intractable groin issue. Like he was kind of supposed to be back for this game, but the Rick Celebrity didn't think he was ready. So, but yeah, I mean, you've got coming off the bench now, Tyus Jones, like John Conchar is like a rugged individual defender, but he doesn't make plays off the ball as much. Um, Tyus Jones is too small. Santi Aldama, not really athletic enough. Brandon Clark is a terrible matchup against the Warriors. It seems mm-hmm. like he always has like some terrible plus minus. He's a team worse, negative 16. Um, what else you got from this one? Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Jordan Poole. 32 points in 29 minutes. He did shoot 11 of 25. Um, I, I loved how he got into rhythm by working a lot off the ball, getting easier looks. They yeah. got eventually yeah. more ambitious. Like you can see the Steph Curry influence. Um, so, uh, 32 points. He's, he's not a star. I looked up, uh, you know, when do, when do stars score like this on Christmas? And that's actually fairly common today. Julius Randall, or excuse me, when do non-stars score like this? Julius Randall had 35 in his game. Christian Wood had 30. Um, not a lot of examples of non-stars, uh, scoring 30 on Christmas. Patty Mills last year, uh, did it, did <laughs> it for the, for the Nets. Um, and you know, Chris, Years they were not all stars. Chris Milton, Jalen Brown. I don't know if I'm going to count them, but Ennis Freedom, Ennis Cantor at the time, uh, did it for the Knicks in 2017. Kyle Kuzma did it for the Lakers in 2017. Yeah. Before so that was Chauncey Billups and the Nuggets. A laundry list of like guys on teams that shouldn't have been playing on Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, Jordan Poole and, uh, Julius Rand. Well, you can. The Knicks have probably deserved it at this point. But yeah, basically, you know, it's, uh, it was three guys today and three guys in the previous like decade plus. Uh, but I, you know, I, I had some higher ambitions for whatever pool stat I could come up with. And then he got ejected and that ended his scoring. Yeah. That was, uh, that was interesting. You know, it wasn't like tremendously efficient for him, but he got eight free throw attempts. Um, did have five turnovers, 11 to 25, but you need a volume guy without Curry. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, you felt like maybe Memphis could get back into it down, you know, 16, 18 when he got ejected, but they never really got it under, under double digits. But you mentioned pools cutting, and I thought that was, you know, Memphis loves to topside. That's the way mm-hmm. they play against Golden State, where you're just preventing guys from coming up towards the ball. 
but the back door is open. Like Zaire Williams, Dylan Brooks, like those guys guarding Clay, guarding even DiVincenzo, uh, who was excellent with five and nine from three in this one and has been really good all year for Golden State uh, and, and guarding Poole. And I thought those guys just, they cut really, really hard. And they just kept moving really hard without the ball. Van Gundy even talked about it. And, and I thought that was really important for to get some of those system buckets. I also thought Draymond Green, even though uh, he only had three points, had 13 assists and 13 rebounds. And you can tell like his pace pushing the ball up. Like You can tell when he's engaged. And frankly, in this era when the Warriors are going to play well, when he pushes the ball up quickly mm-hmm. a lot even after make sometimes like that just shows he's engaged i thought he had a great defensive game too mm-hmm. with some of his closeouts individual defense so that was, that was pretty important as you, well. you already complimented uh a lot of the parts of his game i wanted to get to but i want to talk about the three points uh it was early in the second quarter it was it was early in the second quarter uh the warriors had a ty jerome clay thompson anthony lamb jonathan kuminga draymond lineup um and you kind of wonder how the offense is going to flow with that they had a real ugly possession they were on their way to another when Draymond had an open three-pointer. And you know Draymond doesn't want to shoot three-pointers. Uh, but he just took it because I, I think he sensed that that was as good of a look as that unit was going to yeah. get. And that's what he made. Um, and so I, I got a stat. And I know he's gotten a lot of credit for what he's done with the those second units. Um, when the Warriors are playing with no Curry and no Poole, uh, when they have Draymond Green on, their offensive rating is 152. Without Draymond Green, it's 112. <laughs> Obviously, we're dealing with a small sample there. But I do think there's some truth to like – those units are helpless without without Draymond, and he is so smart in figuring out what to do to get those things going offensively when you don't have Curry or Poole. Yeah, and I think also it, Ty Jerome and Anthony Lamb, probably the two best two-way guys in the league, which is pretty fucking <laughs> important when they're, they basically have, you know, Wiseman hasn't been playing, although I do want to talk about him briefly. Uh, Andre Guadalla, wears some really stylish sweaters on the sideline so far but doesn't seem like he, his debut is imminent you know ryan rollins is completely unplayable and, and then they for tax reasons they didn't sign a 15th guy so if they didn't have those two guys able to like come in and not kill them like they would be an even bigger troll like jerome 14 points and uh, two of four from three he i think had a personal 8-0 run during the warriors 11-0 run that took it from tied to basically deciding the game late in the third um and lamb too i mean like they're just some of the plays that he knows how to make in addition to making threes and being passable on defense it, where you know he, he knows to step up to to the ball when the guys are being pressured and then look back door you know things that Guys who, you know, like a Kelly Oubre type would have never known, but because he knows how to play, he can make a few of these plays and like keep their system running with Draymond. You know, he's a nice fit with Draymond on that second unit as well. Yeah. Um, when we, we talked about all the Jaron Jackson Jr. fouls, the officiating was bad in this game. I don't like to talk officiating much, but it, it was noticeably yeah. bad. There was one where uh, Jaron Jackson uh, fouled Wiseman on a screen and Clay had the ball and then they gave the free throws to Clay. And then oh yeah, that was the fifth foul on Jackson. Yeah, those I was like, what? And what's the, going on? Yeah, and they didn't talk about it till after Clay took the first free throw. And I, at that point, I wonder if they just felt like it was too late, or if they were. I, I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, but to, like, what's the point of even talking about the first free throw? Because I, I don't think you can fix it at that point. I, I think you should be able to. Like, if you got it wrong, like and you let the guy wrong guy shoot a free throw, whatever, just fix it. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that was, that was particularly bad, uh, in just like an easy to digest way, but overall officiating was, was pretty poor. 
Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I'm not going to like shovel dirt on the Grizzlies yeah. after this game. You know, it's the last game of a long road trip. Nine of 39 from three. Like they could shoot better than that. Desmond Bain is just getting his rhythm back. You know, Dylan Brooks did have five fouls, five turnovers and four made shots out of 12. That, that wasn't too good. And, um, and had Clay Thompson dancing on him at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, to me, the takeaway of this game was Warriors have no Steph Curry. They've got no Andrew Wiggins, but they got some pride. The, War- the Grizzlies have been talking a lot. The Warriors wanted to win this, even shorthanded, and they did. I mean, that that to me says something. No, I, I think so. And as much as you know, so I, I still think the Grizz, you know, once Bain gets back, I think they're going to they're gonna take off. I think they're in pretty good position. And Golden State now has this eight-game homestand. They won the first one. They're now at 16 and 18. Steph, uh, the report said he's going to be reevaluated in two weeks. So that'll be kind of towards the end of this homestand. You know, maybe he'll, he'll be playing again in three, possibly. Um, so, you know, if they could go six and two on this homestand, five and three, like they played a lot more road games at this point. They looked so pathetic at the end of that road trip against the Knicks and Nets. But you know, it seems like at least, and Poole is starting to find it at least a little bit now. He, he hasn't been totally consistent, but this is, they play some easier teams on this homestand as well. So this game just makes you feel better, particularly if Wiggins can come back about their ability to win games as they did without Steph Curry at the end of last season. And they've gotten a lot from DiVincenzo. Uh, And last thing too, I want to talk about James Wiseman. Steve Kerr was uh, piling on the superlatives on Wiseman's defense. He played great defense. Great. And (laughs) I I can't go that far, but he was plus eight in eight minutes. And I thought he did, even though he didn't do anything on offense, he did have five defensive rebounds in eight minutes. And he didn't have any blocks, but he did successfully challenge, I think, four or five shots at the rim while only committing one foul. And I had talked to some people at the G League Showcase from the team and, and outside of the team saying, like, you know, it was really good for him to just get more of the nuances of drop coverage and how to challenge at the rim and stuff like that. And and I did see this was one of the better this standing with faint praise, one of the better defensive games that he's played. Like he actually had a positive effect on the game, which given where he has been in his career, like that is a step forward for James Wiseman. I thought you put that that very well. I, I didn't know Kerr said all that. That's obviously over the top. But if we're comparing it to James Wiseman's own baseline, yeah, it was better. It was far better than that. <laughs> all right. Well, I gave us the target of finishing this in 45 minutes. It is now not Christmas anymore. So let's wrap it up here. Thanks so much for being a subscribers. Merry Christmas or happy holidays to all of y'all as well and uh, we'll be back it's gonna be a lighter week this week but we'll get you two more shows uh, this week uh, as well we usually go a little lighter between christmas and new year's with everyone on holiday and uh, we'll talk to y'all in a couple of dates till then still hanukkah though bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the u.s economy in 2022 investments like acquiring america's largest biogas producer archaea energy and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.